Tonight we're moving into chapter 49 of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49. And the main theme of chapter 49 is the servant of the Lord and also the hope that Israel has that the Lord will restore his people. So the Lord's servant and Israel's return. As we look at the first part of the chapter, the first seven verses, we see an emphasis on the Lord's servant. And we've seen this theme before in Isaiah. It's a very prominent theme, especially in the last half of Isaiah, really from chapter 40 onward. And if you search for that word servant in Isaiah, you'll find it about 40 times. And the vast majority of those uses are in the last half of Isaiah. Uh, We've already seen many of them. And up to this point in chapter 40 to 48, most of those uses of the servant have referred to Israel as a whole, being God's servant. But I mentioned before that this term is used different ways in Isaiah. Sometimes it seems to refer more to the whole nation of Israel. Sometimes it can maybe refer to a smaller subset of Israel, like the the remnant. Sometimes it seems to have just an individual person as the servant, which is most likely Jesus, the Messiah. And so it's used in different ways. And we, we see it here in chapter 49, used again. And so the Lord's servant, in verse number one through verse number three, we see the servant's call, the Lord's call, Upon the servant's life. And so verse 1 says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. And what's interesting here is that this servant whom the Lord is calling, this servant will have a, a ministry a message, a calling that extends beyond just the borders of Israel. Because here it's calling out to the islands, which probably from Isaiah's perspective, it would be like the islands of the Mediterranean in that ancient world right around there in in, uh, Asia Minor, Egypt, right around that area. So the Mediterranean islands, but then also beyond to the nations. So this is this is a, a mission that goes beyond just the physical descendants of Abraham. And we also see here, too, that the Lord's call on this servant starts very, from the very beginning of his life, doesn't it? He says, I've been called from my mother's womb. He's spoken my name. So a very, uh, the call on the servant's life is from the very beginning. Verse 2, he says, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. A couple of things there about the servant's mission is that, one, it would have authority. That seems to be the idea with a sharpened sword of when he speaks, his words carry authority, they carry judgment. And interestingly enough, Revelation the Apostle John in the book of Revelation gives this imagery of Jesus Christ. It says, out of his mouth came a sharp sword, which is his word. And so it's, it connotes authority 
and the ability to judge and to execute God's judgment and mission. But also at the last part of the verse, it says, he made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Probably the idea of a very specific purpose and mission, the idea of a smooth, straight flying arrow that is for a specific mission that the Lord has called him to. In verse three, it says, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. So God is going to be glorified through the mission of this servant. But now we see in verse three, it seems like in verse three, the servant is referring to Israel as a whole because he, that's what it says, right? Here is, here's my servant, Israel. But what's interesting is as you move a little bit further into the next couple of verses, it doesn't seem to be referring to the nation as a whole. It it seems to be, even though here he says, my servant Israel, he seems to be narrowing in to a, a, a narrower focus than the whole nation of Israel. So we see the servant's call. In verse four, we see the servant's cry, the servant's cry. And this is the idea of a servant crying out really in lament, in, in sorrow. He says, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. Verse four seems to communicate that from the perspective of the servant, that one, there would be frustration of perhaps people not responding to his mission people not responding to his message. But yet, even in the midst of that frustration, he expresses hope, doesn't he? He expresses the hope that that what is due me in the Lord's hand, it will come. My Lord will deliver it. It is with my God. So you have frustration and discouragement. Feels like all of his work has been in vain. And yet his hope is still in God that ultimately it will be successful. So his cry, his cry of lament, of frustrating ministry. But then we see the servant's confirmation in verses 5 through 7. So his call, his cry, his confirmation. In verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. So again, we see this reference of the Lord's care of this servant, his call going all the way back to the very beginning of in the being formed in the womb, being brought into the world to accomplish the Lord's purpose. And he says, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, meaning that, that he has been chosen by God to fulfill this mission. And it's a, it's a mission of honor, isn't it? It's a mission of special importance in the Lord's work. And the Lord has been his strength, sustained by God and his spirit. Now, I just want to draw our attention just for a moment to the middle of this verse, because it provides an aspect of his mission of this servant to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm going to come back to this question in a minute. 
But verse 3 said, who is the servant? Israel. But now it says the servant is bringing Jacob and Israel back to the Lord. So how can Israel bring back Israel? That's the question of interpretation. So verse 3 says the servant is Israel, but yet in verse 5, he's bringing back Israel to the Lord. So just remember that for a moment. Verse 6, he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So this goes back to verse 1. Listen, islands. Listen, you nations. And the way this verse begins, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring Israel back home. In other words, that mission is not big enough for you. I'm giving you a bigger mission. Not only to bring back Jacob and Israel to the Lord, but also to go out to the Gentiles and be a light to the nations and bring them in to the fold as well. So again, it's, it's a universal mission. Yes, with Israel at the center or the focus, if you will, but like a ripple effect extending outward to the nations. And verse 7, this is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Again, speaking of the servant. So it seems to be at the beginning of this verse that the servant of God was despised, was rejected, was abhorred by the nations. But then later on, we see that ultimately the nations will bow down to him. The nations will reverence him because of God's choice on him. Now, let's talk just for a minute about, okay, who's the servant then? Because verse 3 said, it's Israel. Verse 5 said, Israel is bringing, or the servant is bringing Jacob and Israel back to the Lord. So are we talking about a nation as the servant? Because we've seen that it can mean that in other places in Isaiah. Or are we talking about something different? Maybe, maybe just the remnant of the righteous remnant. Maybe God is using the righteous remnant to call back and be a witness to the larger nation, Israel and Jacob. Or are we talking about an individual, an individual servant who is chosen by the Lord to bring Israel back home? I'm going to opt for a blend of two of those because I don't think you can neatly say it's just one. And and I, I hope to show you why here in a second. I think there's a lot in this passage that speaks to it being one person. And that one person would have to be the Messiah, right? It's Jesus. And there's several things in this passage that would fit with that. I mentioned one a few minutes ago with the imagery of the sword coming out of his mouth. That fits very well with Revelation 19, verse 15, that speaks of Jesus with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. But we also see in this passage the discouragement 
of the servant. That it seemed like many were not responding to his message and his mission. We can see that paralleled in the ministry of Jesus, can't we? Where Jesus really groans and is lamenting the fact that Israel has, is rejecting him in unbelief. Um, in Mark 6, verse 6, Jesus marvels at the people's unbelief. So there's a parallel there between the discouragement of rejection of this servant and what we see in Jesus' ministry. We also see, I think, another parallel between this servant and Jesus' ministry is where in verse 7 it says that the servant was despised and abhorred. It's a very close in wording to what we see in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected of men. And we see that in the ministry of Jesus too, that, that he was rejected and despised, ultimately put on a cross. Also, we see, I think, a parallel with Jesus' ministry and this servant in that God says to the servant, it's not enough for you just to bring back Jacob and Israel. I'm sending you to the nations. And we can see that fulfilled in Jesus' ministry when he says, for example, in John, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I need to bring them in also, speaking of the Gentiles. And then, and then Jesus' apostles and disciples, they carry on that mission of bringing the light to the Gentiles. So I think there's several things in this passage that are fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus and, and clear parallels. So I can see this referring to an individual, the Messiah, but there's also a couple of things in this passage that make me want to, to identify it also as the righteous remnant of Israel reaching out to the broader Israel to call them back home. And one of the reasons I think that is because in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas there are speaking to their audience in Antioch of Pisidia, and they cite themselves, Paul and Barnabas, as the fulfillment of Isaiah 49, verse 6. God had commissioned them as a light to the Gentiles. So they quote Isaiah 49, 6 in Acts 13, 47, and apply it to themselves. So, so is Jesus the servant, or are the righteous remnant, the righteous elect, if you will, of Israel the servant? And I'm saying, I don't think you necessarily have to choose between the two. I think Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of who this servant is. But then his, his disciples that he has called, his apostles, the righteous remnant, if you will, are carrying on his mission. And so Paul and Barnabas quote Isaiah 49.6 as referring to them. But you could see that as we're carrying on the mission of the Messiah. So I could see it as Jesus is ultimately the savior and the light to his people and to the nations. But then the people that he has called to himself, they extend that message and that light to the nations. So I would say kind of a both and with the the identity of this servant, focusing in on Jesus, but then extending also to his, his followers who he has called to himself. So that's the servant of the Lord in verses 1 through 7. And then the rest of the chapter is really a message of hope about the return of Israel. Now remember the, remember the context, right? The historical context of many of these prophecies is it is assuming an Israel that is in captivity. 
an Israel that is in exile in Babylon. And so this is a message of hope to that exiled Israel that their time of salvation and coming home is, is soon on the horizon. So Israel's return. In verses 8 through 13, we see God's guidance of his servant. God's guidance of his servant. And the way that the servant will play a role in the rescue of his people. So verse 8 says, this is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. So here he's speaking still of the servant. He says, I'm going to make you to be a covenant for the people. That would fit very well with Jesus in his new covenant ministry, wouldn't it? So Jesus as the new covenant for his people. And he says a part of that mission of the servant or the Messiah is going to be be restoring the people of God. And that I think the initial fulfillment of that is coming home from exile. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? There's, There's a grander fulfillment still to come. Verse 9 says, To say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. So a couple of things there. One is the Lord's going to set his people free, right? So just like delivering them from Egypt and the Exodus, he's going to draw them out of Babylon and they're going to be free. And he's going to provide for them and sustain them and guide them on the road back home. You'll have food. There'll be pastures for you to feed on as you travel the road and go home. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. Sounds very much like Psalm 23, doesn't it? Very much like a shepherd type imagery of God leading and guiding his sheep back home. And just like God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness, coming out of Egypt, giving them manna, giving them water. Moses says in Deuteronomy, this whole time your shoes didn't wear out, your, your clothes didn't fall apart. God cared for you. He took care of you this whole time. Same kind of message is given to the people coming out of Babylon. He's going to provide for you. He's going to care for you, guide you. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. Again, familiar familiar imagery that we've seen in Isaiah where the mountains are brought low to make it easier for travel. The highways smoothed out, straightened. Basically, God's making a smooth, straight path back for his people. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Which is why I think that what Isaiah is referring to here is not just return from the Babylonian captivity. That's, that's kind of like the initial fulfillment of it. But this is speaking of a, an even larger homecoming, if you will. And it, it sounds very much like what we see Jesus refer to in Matthew 24, 
when he says the angels are going to go and gather the elect of God from the four winds of the earth, meaning the four directions on the compass, right? North, south, east, west. And he's going to bring them to Zion. So this imagery of my people coming from all over and coming home, I think is not ultimately going to be fulfilled until Jesus' second coming and that regathering of his people. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Just a call to praise, right? Because of the hope that is held out for the future of God's people. Sing and rejoice because God is going to comfort and care for his people. But Zion has doubts about that. They have doubts about whether the Lord is actually going to bring this to fruition. And you can, you can feel that, uh, you can identify with that, can't you? That, that if you're someone who is waiting a long time for something, God has given promises. He's, he's promised restoration. He's promised a homecoming. But let's say you've been in Babylon 40 years. And you've heard the prophets say these things. And you're wondering, when, right? When's it going to come? And so the people of Israel were in Babylon for about 70 years. You can imagine that there would be times when they would, they would have natural doubts. And, and wondering when this was going to fulfill. So Isaiah has a message for them. Verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. So that's, that's the temptation to think that, that when you're waiting on the Lord and things aren't unfolding in the way that we want, in the timing that we want, the temptation is to think God's not going to act. He's forgotten all about me. It's not going to happen. And Isaiah says, but here's a message for you from God. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. And so Isaiah is using very, very clear imagery here of, is it possible for a mother to forget about a baby that she is still nursing? She's going to be reminded often, right? She's going to be reminded often, it is time to feed this child a mother who is nursing a child cannot forget about that child. There's going to be a frequent reminder that it's time to feed this child. And how can she forget a child that she has born? And Isaiah says, now he's, he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If a mother could not forget her child, then certainly God could not forget you. Even if a mother were to forget about her child, God will never forget about you. So he's taking something that happens in everyday life, and even as remote a possibility as that is, that a nursing mother would forget about her child, he says God even more so would never forget about you. Verse 16, See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. The idea there is that how could God forget you when your name is written on him? Now, it's, it's metaphorical, right? It's, we're talking about the spirit, God, who doesn't literally have hands. He's not a body. He is a spirit. But this is anthropomorphic, metaphorical language. He's trying to communicate 
that literally God has the name of his people tattooed on his hand. He is not going to forget them. That he, you are ever in his line of vision, in his sight. Your children hasten back, and those who laid you waste depart from you. And the idea here is of, of God now bringing his people home and, and dealing with those enemies that stand in the way of that. So God's going to bring his children home and those who devastated you, those who laid you waste, God's going to remove them, going to take them out of the way. And we know from the larger context of Isaiah that that is Persia going to take care of Babylon, right? So he's going to remove Babylon out of the way, those that have hurt you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you as surely as I live, declares the Lord. You will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. So just beautiful imagery here. Speaking of how all the people of Israel are going to be a well-ornamented robe. And God's going to bring them home. It's going to be a beautiful sight. Though you were ruined and made desolate, and your land laid waste, now you will be too small for your people. And those who devoured you will be far away. I think here he's talking about Jerusalem. And he's talking about how the Lord is going to restore it. And he's going to bless his people so much that this regathering is going to be so big that Jerusalem is not going to be big enough for the regathering. That's the imagery. And again, those who hurt you, those who devoured you, they'll be gone. They'll be out of the picture. The children born during your bereavement will yet say in your hearing, this place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in. And that's just, again, furthering that imagery of God's abundant blessing on how large this regathering will be. Then you will say in your heart, who bore me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone, but these, where have they come from? And so there is the, there's the wonderment of all of these children and, and just the, the grand reunion that it will be. And then we see God's vindication in the last few verses of the chapter. God's vindication. You remember that one of the issues with Isaiah, and one of the reasons why Isaiah has focused on God versus the gods, is because of this ancient Near Eastern mindset that if we defeat you, we defeat your God. But now, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, in restoring his people, his name is going to be vindicated. And his name will be glorified and exalted. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the nations. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their hips. The idea of a banner is like a a flag for battle. It's like a rallying point. And so when God says, I'm lifting up the banner, it's the idea of here's your signal. Here's your rallying point. Here's where you're all going to flock to, to come to the Lord. Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord 
those who hope in me will not be disappointed. And the, the image there is of the highest royalty, the most powerful rulers in the world, like the ones who have been your enemies and the ones who have opposed you, they're going to be servants to you. And they'll be bowing down to you. And the Lord's name will be vindicated. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And if you put your hope in me, you will not be disappointed. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? The answer to those questions is no. You can't take plunder from warriors. You can't rescue captives from those who are stronger, fiercer than you. But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. The idea there is that Babylon are like the warriors. Babylon's like the fierce. And your natural thinking is there's no way that you can take the plunder away from those who are strong. But God says, I will. I will. I will take the plunder. I will take my treasure, which is the Israelite people. I will take them away from the strong. And I will bring them back home. I will save them. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now, that's a tough image, isn't it? It's a tough imagery at the beginning of verse 26. Eating their own flesh, drinking their own blood. But the, the, what it's intended to communicate is total defeat. Total defeat and shamed by the power and the authority of the Lord as he rescues his people. Then you will know. And not only you, but all mankind, right? All mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Again, I think there's, I think we have to see these prophecies of Isaiah as unfolding in, in multiple stages. Because the original fulfillment of this is Israel coming home from exile, from Babylon. And clearly, God's name would have been magnified in that. His name magnified that these people that were left for nothing, these people that were basically written off, erased them from the books of history, now they're back again. Now they're restored. But I think it has to go even beyond that. When it says, all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Redeemer, I think ultimately this is going to take place on the last day. When as Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This, this time when all mankind will bow and acknowledge the Lord and acknowledge that I'm your God, I think that has to have an end times fulfillment. At the second coming of the Lord in his triumph, in his victory over the peoples. But this is a message of hope, isn't it? Chapter 49, really the whole passage is a message of hope because the first part says, here's my servant. Here's the one I've chosen. Here's his mission. He's going to call my people. He's going to restore them. He's going to bring them back. And then the rest of the chapter is God's promise that he will do that. Assuring them that just like a mother can't forget her child, I will never forget you. I'm going to bring you back and then people will know that I am the Lord. So put your hope in me. What about today? 
How does this apply to us today? Well, we're not in Babylon. Or are we? It's interesting that the New Testament writers, I'm thinking especially of Peter when I, when I think of this, that they refer to God's kind of scattered children as being in exile. So we are, as the church of Christ now, composed of Jews and Gentiles, all of us now under one shepherd and one sheepfold, we are viewed as being in exile. So in a sense, we're very much continuing on in this pattern of Isaiah when Isaiah promises the people of his day, the Lord's going to bring you home. Well, that is directly then applied to us by carrying forward that imagery of exile. This is now applied to us. And we can put our hope in the Lord's promise that his servant, whom we know as the Messiah, whom we know as Jesus Christ, his servant will one day bring us all home. And that's what we have to hope in. And so no matter what goes on in this world, whether we have enemies or persecutors or those who malign us, blaspheme, slander us, hurt us, whatever it is, that one day God will deal with all of those enemies. And one day God will bring all of his children home. And when he does, it's going to be a straight highway. It's going to be a smooth path. In fact, Paul says it'll, it'll happen in the twinkling of an eye, right? That's about the smoothest path and quickest road that you can ever imagine. But we have this hope to look forward to. And so I hope that we're encouraged by that.